What a tremendous line that is from the very, this very final hymn before the reading and the preaching of God's Word. Listen to these words from Bernard of Clairvaux. O Jesus, ever with us stay, make all our moments calm and bright. Chase the dark night of sin away and shed o'er the world thy holy light. I pray that that's your prayer. I pray that that's your heart. That the dark clouds and night of sin would more and more be pushed to the margins of our life and of our world. And that the light and the life of Christ and His glorious gospel would be more and more the cascading light that we experience and see and walk in as the people of God. I want to take just a moment to make a note before we preach God's Word and look at Psalm 16 together to reference that little white sheet of paper that you have in the middle of your bulletin. You might just take it out for a second because it has to do with that final line of what it is that we just sang, that the darkness of sin and its night would flee away and that the light of the holiness and glory of God would be more and more realized in the world. I don't have to tell you that last week was a momentous and historic moment in the life of our nation. When the ruling from the Supreme Court came down to ratify what has come to be known as same-sex marriage, that was a blow for so many of us in this room. It was a sobering moment. It was a moment where we acknowledge before the Lord and with one another that this is evidence that things are not the way that they ought to be. And that the darkness and the reality of sin still really present in our world, and maybe in a very real sense, increasingly so, in our own nation. We were sobered so much by that as elders here at Cornerstone Presbyterian Church that we felt it very important that you understand where we as a local congregation are on this matter. That's why we've taken time over the last week and a half to pin for you the white sheet of paper that you have there in your bulletin, which merely restates what we have always believed. What we have always believed. We actually believe that the definition of marriage and the design of God for sexuality in the world has never changed. And it needs no redefinition. We believe that God's Word speaks clear and He speaks universally and absolutely. And we joyfully profess that with you this morning by God's grace. We realize that that voice will very likely in the days to come become something that will be less and less adhered to by our community and by the culture in which we live. And that sobers us. We lament over that. And we believe that that will pose both challenges and opportunities for the church at Cornerstone Presbyterian Church and for the church of Jesus Christ at large in the world today. And we look forward to both facing those challenges and seizing upon those opportunities as the Lord, by His grace, continues to strengthen us with the presence of His Spirit. 
as we approach this subject of joy today, I couldn't help but realize that the irony of what some call gay marriage, a word that's taken from gaiety, from joy and from fun, is calling good what God calls sin. And regardless of whether we are doing that through internet searches online, being unfaithful sexually, whether we're doing that in extramarital affairs, through premarital intimacy, or whatever way that we may be stepping over the bounds of God's design sexually in our relationships together, we believe that we are limiting, truncating, and diminishing the joy of what God has designed for His people in this area. And we want to be a church that faithfully pursues sexual purity together as a people. So we hope that this letter will be to you an encouragement and a challenge and indeed a joy as we move into a new era as we seek to faithfully wave the banner of Christ's love in the gospel for the world. Now to that end, let's turn our attention to God's Word and let's look together at this beautiful passage of Scripture, Psalm 16. This is God's Word. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. And as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because He is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The grass withers. And the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we acknowledge before you that we need your joy. We need your joy to answer your call and to encounter the reality of your character and who you are. 
And so I would ask now that you would come with that spirit who is all joy, that he would come as our comforter and he would speak to us from your word. He would confirm to us your truth. He would grant to us fullness of joy and the experiences of the pleasures at your right hand. Come now and meet with us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope that yesterday you were able to enjoy the holiday. It's an important holiday in our nation's history. July 4th, 1776 marks an incredible moment in the history, the forging of this nation. As that declaration of independence and what would be the Constitution of the United States of America, this new experiment in liberty, as some of the founding fathers like to call it, began in earnest in a special and new way, that glorious day in 1776. You might remember some of the words, some of the most famous words, maybe even a few of you read these words yesterday as you reflected over the past of our own nation's history. And you remember these words. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, and that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, the pursuit of happiness. That's something as Americans we have been told we have the right to pursue. And undoubtedly yesterday some of us pursued some happiness, maybe in hamburgers and watermelon and music and fireworks and fellowship with others. We in Joy, the pursuit of happiness, even the good gifts that the Lord has given to us, and maybe even reveled in the history of our nation, maybe even recounting stories about how the Lord's been so faithful to us, how He's poured out His benevolent love upon us. But as you and I know, those things, as good and as real as those moments of happiness are and were yesterday, they are moments of fleeting happiness. They just are. And, and what we see in this beautiful document is glorious statement about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, but we don't have an unpacking about where we might really find that happiness. We're told we're to pursue it. We're to find our way to it somehow and it seems as if, as I look over the plain, that many people find it in things that seem opposite to what God would say real joy is found and where it can be located. And it's not just looking outside the four walls of the church, it's looking inside at the reality of our lives lived together as a community of, of faith. And that sometimes as we pursue a life of happiness, we go to look for that happiness in places that 
that it can't be sustained. That ultimately it just can't give us what it is that we want to get from it. And this pursuit becomes a rat race. And this rat race becomes a wearying, wayward journey. Rather than a person in whom wherever it is that the Lord might take us, we can commune with and know that His path is the way of life and at His right hand are pleasures and in His presence is fullness of joy. Don't you, don't you see that the framers of the Declaration of Independence needed what David tells us in Psalm 16? That this life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness comes, as David says at the very end of this psalm, you will show me the pathway of life, and in your presence is what? Fullness of joy. Where does the pursuit of happiness lead us? It doesn't lead you into a bigger house. It doesn't lead you into a new spouse. It doesn't lead you in some new, free, and now legal experience and encounter with another, it leads you into a relationship with God. C.S. Lewis said that there is desires that are within each and every one of us that this world cannot satisfy. And the conclusion that we should draw is that if there are desires within us that this world cannot satisfy, our conclusion should be that we were made for another world. We were made for the world to come. That we're pilgrims in this land passing through and that there is real joy and real happiness that can be experienced on this plane, but it cannot be located within any created thing no matter how good and glorious that created thing may be. It can only be found in the fullness of the joy of the presence of God. Now, David wants to lead us there this morning. How do you get to that fullness? How do you get to that pathway of life and know those pleasures forevermore? That's a pretty important question. That's what we want to look at together. And I want you to see that there are, there are devotions that we must have in this life. And there are contentments that we must gain in this life, in our pursuit of God, in order to experience that fullness of joy that is laid open for us in this passage. There are devotions that we must give ourselves to. There are contentments that we must encounter and experience and engage in order to experience the fullness of joy that David lays out for us in this passage, and I hope as quickly as we possibly can to get through these glorious verses so that we can see that together and even experience God's joy as we lead into His Word. Now, I want you to look with me. I want you to look with me first at these devotions, these devotions that you see in verses 2 to 4 in the passage before us. I want to I slow down in verse 2, and I want you to just see what David is doing here. He says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. The first devotion for a joy-filled life in God is that we must be devoted to God Himself. We must be devoted to God Himself. This is first and primary for David as he pursues a life of fullness of joy with the pleasures forevermore at God's right hand. He is devoted to God Himself personally. He says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. It's a little bit of an unusual verse. 
saying to the Lord that you are my Lord. Well, that should be self-evident if you're saying that to the Lord, David. But interestingly, the words for Lord here are different. Now, in your translation, you might actually note this. If you look at verse 2, you'll see that the first Lord is in all capital letters. I say to the Lord, and then in the next Lord, it's not in all capital letters. Whenever you see that in the Scriptures, the translators are indicating to you in the all capital letters of the Lord that you are encountering the covenant name of God, the name Yahweh, as you've heard in the Scriptures. It's the name that Moses received from the Lord when he was on Mount Horeb tending sheep and God came to him in a burning bush and God commissioned him and he said, I want you to go back to Egypt and lead my people out of slavery. And Moses was like, I think you're looking for a different Moses, maybe on the other side of the mountain. And God says, no, 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 I'm looking for you. And he goes, well, it could be possible that the people might not actually believe that you sent me. So maybe you should tell me your name so that when I get there, I will tell them your name. And God says, you can tell them that I am that I am has sent you. And you go, what's strange? Okay, I am that I am has sent you, the present and only God. Kind of the picture of Deuteronomy 6, that we believe in the Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. I am the God, the present God, the only God. That is the God that has sent you. The words, I am that I am, are literally the words Yahweh. That's what they are. That's what they are. And he's saying here, I'm saying to Yahweh, the covenant name of the Lord, I'm saying you are my Lord. And this is the more general use in, in, the, in verse 2. The more general use is sovereign. I say to my Lord, my personal Lord, the covenant God of Israel, I say to you, you are my sovereign. You are my ruler. You are my king. You are the one who runs all the business of my life. And I say to you, you are my Lord. Now, what is David saying here? He's saying, listen, if you want fullness of joy in the Lord, it's going to require utter submission to the sovereignty of God. Utter submission to the sovereignty of God. Resignation of your own self and your own will to the will of Almighty God. And David says it's not enough to say you are the Lord. He says you are my Lord. I want you to occupy the throne of my life. And I want to give profession that you are my God, that you are my Lord, and that I am one of your created beings. I'm under the power of your rule. And I find that when I'm under your sovereign rule, it's not tyrannical. It's not manipulative, it's not dictatorish in the way that they count. I find it's benevolent, I find it's gracious. I find the more that I delight in your law, the more I love your testimonies, the more I see your spirit conquering the outlying rebellious areas of my heart and life, the more I see joy experience in my life. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? When you, when you look at the counsels of God in the Word and He commands something to us, do you go, oh, that's restrictive? Oh, man, He's really cutting out my joy here. He's cramping my style. <laughs> it's a, we have a tendency to think this way, don't we? About the law of the Lord. We don't tend to say it like David. Your, your law is my meditation day and night. I delight in your law. I see your commands and I see your heart for me. 
come out in it. G.K. Chesterton said quite a few years ago now that the law is like fences to a playground. You know, if you don't have fences to a playground, children run out in the street. It gets scary for everybody. Put a fence around the playground. Guess what? It's a lot, it's a lot more fun. It's a lot more joy. That God, when he puts fences and parameters up through the commands of his word, he's not saying, hey, listen, there's a lot of fun on the other side of the fence. If you just jump over the fence, you're going to have a great time. But I'm going to keep you from it because I'm a mean God. He says, no, you know why I put this fence here? I put this fence here because on the other side of this fence is the loss of your joy. And I don't want that for you. I want you to love my law because my law is for your joy. It's for your delight. He says, you are my Lord. You are my Lord. Love my law. Follow my law. Conform your pathway to my law. And what you'll find is there will be joy, will be the benefit, the blessing that's produced from that joy. And then notice what he says here. He says in this verse 2, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. And this, to be quite honest, you go, really? I mean, I mean, let's, let's be honest, no good apart from you? Well, I mean, that hamburger I ate yesterday was pretty good. And, and I've sensed that my wife is good, my family's good. I've, I've sensed I have a lot of good. That's not, what, that's not what David means here. No good apart from you, as if all good is entirely and exclusively you in that there is no other good. No, that's not what David means. What David means is that all the other goods in life cease to be good when they are apart from you. There's no good apart from you. Everything that is good is tied up in, bound up in you. Isn't that true? Isn't that true? Think of it. Think of something you love. Think of something you love. And then think of a time where you've abused it. You've not followed God according to his law. And you said, I really love this, so I'm going to drink more of it. I really love this, so I'm going to eat more of it. I really love this, so I'm going to do more of it. You know, I'm gonna, and then all of a sudden, you cross a line at some point, and you go realize, this is not good. And it has an effect on you. And usually it's a painful effect. And all of a sudden you realize is that thing which was good became no good when I left you. I left your testimonies and I left your word. I have no good apart from you. But everything can be delightful and good and glorious and the experience of this life when it's connected to you. And so this devotion of finding ourselves personally committed to God... Secondly, this devotion is saying, I want to trace every good that I've been given to God. I want to trace every good that I've been given to God. In fact, let me encourage you and challenge you to do that. In fact, if you struggle with depression, discouragement, losing your focus, and you're like, yes, all of us, okay, great. Okay, so if you're, you're in that place, well, what's an exercise that you could do? Well, an exercise of Thanksgiving is to say, hey, this cup of coffee... Lord, you've provided this cup of coffee and you made the coffee beans that made this and you made the water that made this. It was your sovereign plan that created this. And as I take a sip of it and my eyes begin to awaken just a little bit this morning, I think you're so good to me. You're so good to me. What did I do? I just meditated. 
just reflected for a second on a small gift of the Lord, and I traced it to the goodness of God. I have no good, Lord, apart from you. And then you know what happens? Lord, I forget you, and I drink six cups of coffee, and my heart races, and I go into the doctor, and the doctor says, yeah, you've got an issue here. You've crossed over some line. Let's remember this. David is saying this is the part of the devotion of our life that's meant for the fullness of our joy. But notice there's a, there's a third devotion. He says, verse 3, As for the saints, the holy ones in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my uh, delight. I love this. <laughs> I love this. David is saying, you know what? One of the greatest goods, and this is how you know that David is not saying, by the way, that there's no good in the world at all, that only God is good, because in verse 3 he says, you know, I take a whole lot of delight in people. You go, oh, okay. So there, there are other things that are good in life. So you know, so it's, I take a whole lot of delight in people. But notice how he delights in the people of God. He says, as for the saints, the holy ones, how's he viewing them? With the eyes of God. With the eyes of God. Do you know that the word used for you is saint? And just let that settle on you. We sometimes think of iconography when we think of saint, or we think of, you know, St. Paul, St. Augustine, and we kind of harken back to sainthood, and some of us have that in our background, our experiences. But actually, if you look at the New Testament's use of the word, it describes you and me. Saints, holy ones in the land. What, what's David saying? He's saying, I see people through the lens of God. I see him with the eyes of God. I see his people and I reflect on his people. I consider his people in the way that God considers his people. He says they are the excellent ones. Actually, a pretty difficult section in the Hebrew here. They are the majestic ones, it could be, in whom is all my delight. He takes great delight in the people of God. And let me tell you, he takes great delight in the people of God, not because the people of God are always delightful. Yeah, don't, don't forget that. It's not circumstantial. If you stick around here at Cornerstone for very long, somebody's going to rub you wrong. I'm going to burst your bubble. There's some sinners in this room, no offense. One of them's preaching right now. He's going to totally mess up with you. Okay? So it's not that we're always going to be likable or delightful. It's that when I look at you, I see you through the righteousness of Christ. I see you through what God has done for you, and I know the delight he takes in you. And so I appropriate by faith the way that I relate to you according to the eyes of God. And I think as I'm talking to my sister or I'm talking to my brother, I know what delight God has in you. I know what joy God has in you. I know what righteousness he's cloaked you with. I know you're on a journey like me, and we're stumbling forward in this Christian life. And I just, when I look at you, I delight in you. I delight in you. That's the picture here. And David is saying, listen, if you're going to be devoted to the life of joy, you're going to be devoted to God personally. You're going to have to learn to trace those goods in relationship with Him. And you're going to have to learn to situate yourself into the delightfulness of the people of God. Now, David is doing this for a whole lot of reasons, but let me tell you one of the main reasons. One of the main reasons is we need each other to remind each other of the truth all of the time. All of the time. Think of how forgetful you are, and I am, as we live our lives. 
We hear something on Sunday, we're encouraged among the people of God, and it shakes out of us by Monday or Tuesday. We don't even remember what the message was about, what the songs were, the conversations we had. And so we're stumbling, hopefully, into a midweek small group somewhere and saying, I want to delight in God's people. Please tell me, remind me of the things that are true. Renew my mind. Spirit, use the people of God as they speak to me, as they hug me, as they write letters to me, as they encourage me. This is the means of grace. The means of grace. Sometimes we think, oh, I want the joy of the Lord. And I'll go search for it on my own. David's saying it doesn't work that way. It's a communal effort. It's a communal effort. A couple of weeks ago, I was meeting with a dear friend of mine, and he had lost his joy. It was really what had happened. He lost his joy, and he came to me, and because at times the Lord has used me to help him find his joy. And you know what? I go to him because at times he helps me find my joy. And that's beautiful about friendship, isn't it? It's a glorious thing about friendship. And he came to me in a low moment. And by the end of our time together, we had about 30, 45 minutes, he said, I'm so encouraged. I'm so encouraged. I've been renewed. I he goes, I wish I could do this on my own. I just thought it's such a telling thought. Don't you wish you could do that on your own? You're like, I ought to be able to do this on my own. Not according to this passage. You actually need each other. That you're going to lose your joy if you're not with each other. It's going to happen. We need each other. It's not a sign of weakness to know that. It's a sign of faith to believe that. And a sign of obedience to move towards it. We need each other in this. So this third devotion is this devotion to the people of God. And then fourthly, the fourth devotion is resisting idolatry. Look, look at what he says here in verse 4. He says, The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Sorrow is a contrast to joy in this passage. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. And their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. Now, what is David doing here? Well, he's doing the negative of what he's already done in the positive. And the psalmist does this all of the time. We, we do this in relationship with one another, right? A husband says to a wife, I love you. I love you. There, there's, I'm just so thankful for this about you. And, and I'm so thankful for that about you. And, and then he says, and there is no other woman in all of life that could possibly be a rival to you. What did he do? He went negative and he looked out at every other possible way to find a pursuit of happiness. And he said, you know what? I know that all that's mirage. I know all of that is smoke and mirrors. I know all that's bread and circuses. It ultimately will mean nothing and it will come off flat. When I look at you, Lord, I know I have full, full devotion in you. And the false gods, though sometimes look tantalizing, it's fool's gold. And their idolatries, I won't participate in. In fact, my, their names won't even be on my lips. I will abstain. I will resist from all of rivals. Because I know that rivals come offering promises that they'll never be able to cash in on. I had the sorrow of walking with one of my friends who had an affair at one point. And in doing so gave testimony to this very reality. The thing that looks like is going to give me joy and satisfaction in the moments after the fleeting happiness and pleasure have dissipated. A discouragement and a despair settles on you 
where you think, I thought it was going to be better than this. That's what he's saying here in terms of idolatry. I thought it might be better than I'm going to resist all of the other false gods in life. And what that means is we've got to be incredibly attuned to our hearts. Aren't there idols in your life that you just kind of run back to? You know, it's like the story in in First and Second Kings, where Baal would regularly fall, and it seems like he, you know, he'd prop back up in, in the morning. That's kind of how our idols are. They fall down and they prop back up. You know, we're not gonna we're not gonna serve that anymore, and we do great for like three days, you know, and then go back to it. Being repenters of our false serving of the gods of this world and a refocus of where our true joy is and the value of who God is, that's a constant battle. And we need the church as a help to be able to do that. Well, listen, these devotions are here. Love to spend more on them. But there's a contentment that's needed here too. And we see this in verses 5 and 6. It's devotion to God, but there's a contentment in God that he describes here in verses 5 and 6. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. David is saying here, God, when I begin to reflect upon you, you are to me the most basic meal of life itself. You are my portion and my cup. He's describing a meal. He's saying, that's what you are. If I, have, if I need something to eat, this is what I eat. I, I come and I eat and chew on, consume you. You are my portion. You are my cup. And this, this sense of getting our daily sustenance from the Lord is what David is saying. He's saying, listen, if you're going to want contentment, you're going to have to feed on God himself. You're going to have to let God be your sustenance. And then he goes into the next section and he says that those, well, some of those most famous verses in all of the scripture, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Not only see is God the sustenance of our life, but he's acknowledging that God is the surveyor of our life. You see, those pleasant lines are boundary markers. He's borrowing language from the book of Joshua. The book of Joshua, you know that when the people of God went into the land of Canaan, God marked out for the 12 tribes of Israel particularly boundary markers of where they're supposed to live. You know, this is for Issachar, and this is for Manasseh, and this is for Reuben, and so forth. And those boundary markers were the inheritance that were given to the tribes and were passed down to the people. David is saying here, I look out over the course of my life, and you know what? I see its boundaries. I see, I see that I lived in this place, and I see that I wandered in that place, and I see that you were involved in that. And I look in between those boundaries at all of the land and, the, and all of the experiences that have been happening on that land. And as I look out upon it, I say to myself, the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, the Lord has given to me a beautiful inheritance. Now look, this is the discipline of contentment. The discipline of contentment by first feeding upon Christ as our sustenance to be able to say, Lord, I know that though there are things in this life that say to me, eat me, eat me, consume me, I know that if I do, it's going to sour in my stomach. And so I come to you, you are my portion and you are my cup. And as I commune with you, I find that you are sweeter than honey. I find that man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. And when I look over my life, I don't go, oh man, that's miserable. Oh, that's terrible. There's a loose end over there. 
Man, I, I, in fact, I come with the eyes of God, and as I survey my life, I think, boy, those difficulties right there are working in me a harvest of righteousness. That mystery over there, I'm waiting and anticipating of when God's going to unfold it and it's all going to become clear. This incredible joy of what he's given me in this part of my life, I know was a particular benevolent thing that he poured out upon me. Do you see the lens through which David is surveying his life? Now let's think about this. This is David. He had a hard life. Right? He had a hard life. It wasn't as if it was sunshine and roses all of the time, happy rainbows. He wasn't skipping on the yellow brick road. I mean, this is, this is a very difficult life. This is a life where he was sought after to be killed multiple times, where many of his dreams didn't come to fruition. He had tons of varying relationship problems, even in his faithful leadership, that was happened. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. It is a beautiful inheritance to me. Do you see, that's an eye of faith. That's an eye of faith to, with the promises of God, see what it is that God is doing. And then he says, I bless the Lord, verse 7, that gives me counsels in the night. Also, my heart instructs me. I have always set the Lord before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Do you see? He says we have to find contentment in the counsel and the instruction of the Lord alone. He says, I receive contentment and restfulness in your counsels. In your testimonies, not in others' counsels and testimonies, in yours. That, that's where my blessing comes from. That's where my joy comes from. Look at how he even says it. In the night also my heart instructs me. It could, it could be translated, in the watches of the night my heart instructs me. Meaning that even as I rest, there is a continual stirring of instruction, my heart's bubbling up with your testimonies because you've poured them in, you've filled me in with your spirit. It can also mean, as David must have had many of these nights, as I toss and turn and look at the ceiling, or in David's case, probably looking at the stars, and I wonder what's going to happen, my heart reminds me of all of your counsels. My heart reminds me of your testimonies. My, my heart as my mind begins to race over all the things that could happen. Is, Saul, is that Saul I hear over there? Is he, is he here to kill me? Is that Absalom? Uh, that's right. No, I will take comfort in the Lord. My heart continues to run things to my mind and renews me that even as I rest, my heart is instructed. Notice how he does this, verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me. Don't you see that's what this is about? This is about setting the Lord always before you. What an incredible challenge that is. When the Lord is before you, when your mind is awakened to his truth and his promises, is not there a settled sense of peace and joy that begins to overtake you? And is not that a lot of work and effort to continue to have the Lord before you? Absolutely it is. You're going to need his word. You're going to need his prayer. You're going to need each other. You're going to need to go to places and be involved in things that will continue to remind you and set the Lord before you so that your mind's eye and your imagination are entirely captured by the beauty of who God is. I set the Lord before me and notice what he, how he feels when he said, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. He has this sense of utter confidence in the Lord. I ran across this in a sermon a few years ago, in fact, on this very passage by one of my 
favorite preachers, uh, Dr. Dale Ralph Davis, he told a story about Charles Hodge, and it just, just illustrates, I think, this principle so clearly. Listen to Charles Hodge, who was one of the great Princeton theologians, one of the old Presbyterians from years ago. Charles Hodge wrote this, reminiscing about his childhood. He says, as far back as I can remember, I had the habit of thanking God for everything he gave me and asking him for everything I wanted. If I lost one of my books or playthings, I would just pray that I might find it. And as I prayed or walked along the streets in school and out of school, whether playing or studying, God was with me. I did not do this as an obedience to a rule. It just seemed natural and the right thing to do. I love that line. I thought of God as an ever-present being full of kindness of love who would not be offended if his children always talked to him. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? He walked along, he's just thanking the Lord. Think, think, you know, flowers, walking along the flowers. Rain's coming down, he's thanking the Lord. He's thinking about it. It's a hard thing, he's taking it to the Lord. He's running divine errands to the Lord all, all of the time. Then he's leaving them with the Lord. You know how we kind of sometimes run to the Lord and then take back our errand? You know, put the burden back on ourselves. No, 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 he left it there. He left it there with the Lord. Because I'm at his right hand, I shall not be shaken. This is what it sounds like with Charles Hodge here. Is he reminiscent? There's a lightness about him, and there's a joy about him. You see, that's even what happens when we walk through difficult times, maybe even as a nation, maybe even in your own mind and heart, where there's fear and panic that sometimes overtakes us. Take it to the Lord. Take it to the Lord. He's in control. And look at where the confidence is in, con- in conclusion here. Look at what he says. Therefore, which, which means, hey, everything that I've said before leads to this. This is what it produces. This is, this is where we've been headed this whole time. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. That's the fruit. That's the manifest fruit that comes from walking in these devotions and these contentments with the Lord. What? Your whole being rejoices. Your whole being rejoices and your heart is glad. Now, here's what's interesting. Verse 9. My flesh also dwells secure. He means whole being here. He means not just the inside of him, not just his mind, his heart. He means his flesh, his body, the physicality of himself also dwells secure. Why, David? For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Here's the promise that David has. He says, as I've pursued you, as I've inquired in your temple, as I've learned your promises, my heart has been glad. I know that my flesh is secure because here's what I know about you. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol. What is Sheol? It's the place of the dead. You will not abandon my soul to the place of the dead or let your Holy One see corruption. Well, that's interesting. That's really interesting. Now, David does not saying here at the beginning of this verse, he's not saying, I won't pass through death. He's saying that as I pass through, I won't be abandoned. That's different. I walk you through the valley of the shadow of death. Therefore, I will fear no evil. Another Psalm of David that you know quite well, Psalm 23, doesn't say, I walk you Around, I don't let you pass through the, the valley of the shadow. I walk with you through it. It's God's way not to necessarily have us avoid the trials and the difficulties, maybe even the persecutions. 
of life. It is God's way to be present with us in them. Now, that should come as no surprise because we really don't get more than Jesus does. We get exactly what Jesus gets. And Jesus didn't not pass through the valley of the shadow of death. He passed right through the thick of the valley of the shadow of death. In the most darkest kind of death possible, he walked through it. And David here, though, is saying, listen, as you do that, you're not going to abandon my soul. In fact, you're not even going to let me, the Holy One, see corruption. Is that what he means? Well, in Acts 2, thankfully, we've got Peter. And you know what Peter does in Acts 2? He preaches on Psalm 16. It's always nice when New Testament preachers preach on Old Testament texts. Very helpful for pastors. It's very helpful. And so as I looked at Peter's sermon this week in Acts chapter 2, and I saw how Peter treated it, he said, you know what? Let me tell you, when David said this, I will not have my soul abandoned Sheol, and my, the Holy One will not undergo corruption. I want to tell you guys, this is what Peter says, I want to tell you guys, David has a grave and we can go visit it. And what you'll find there are bones. And a man who rotted as his flesh underwent utter decay. And so Peter says, the only logical conclusion here is that at this point in the psalm, David takes leave of talking about himself and he talks about his greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have indication in the text that this is true. Listen, from the very beginning of this text, you know what you've seen? You've seen first-person possessive pronouns. You've seen my's all, all, the way, all the way through this text. You can just glance back there with me. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Right? There it is. And, and then it says, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup, my lot has fallen for me in pleasant places. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. He instructs me. I've set the Lord always before me. Because he is my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells scored. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your. Now, all of a sudden, right in the middle of verse 10, David doesn't talk about me anymore. He doesn't talk about my. You won't let your Holy One undergo corruption. He's not used this kind of possession second person in the entirety of the psalm. Why? Because as Peter said in Acts chapter 2, David foresaw the day of Jesus' coming. David foresaw that there would be one who would come who would indeed be the one who in the ultimate sense was not abandoned to the place of the dead or whose body went through corruption. And because of that, because Jesus is the one who is the greater son of David himself, the greater king, the greater sovereign, David has hope that that greater Messiah will be the one in whom if he places his trust, he'll have the confidence that that verse will be as true for him in the future as it is true for Christ right now. 
as Christ rules and reigns at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Do you see, this, this passage was true first for Christ, and then it is true for everyone who believes in Him. That your bodies, though you may die and fall apart in the grave, you will not fall apart. Because they will in Christ's return be reconstituted and glorified, made in the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ in full righteousness. And all our devotion to God, all our devotion to His goodness, all our experience of His people, all our contentment in Him will find its utter fullness of joy as the pathway of life opens up as we lean in towards the tape at the end of the run. And at the end of the run, as we cross the finish line, we fall into the arms of our Savior made new in His likeness. with all hope and all joy, the likes of which we have only got a thimbleful this side of heaven, will be at our disposal. Do you see David, as he languishes under attack, he sees the future. And he knows the reality. And as we walk by that light, we walk according to it. And by God's grace, he'll carry us there. And it will be our testimony in the presence of God. He did not abandon our soul to Sheol. He did not let our soul undergo corruption. In His presence is fullness of joy. At His right hand are pleasures forever. Father in heaven, we ask for that joy. We ask for those pleasures even ahead of time. And then as we foretaste them here and experience the renewal, we come with holy anticipation of the day when we will be fully known and fully righteous in your sight, in grace. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We ask it in your name. Amen.